Good morning, Castleton Church family. As always, it's a delight to be with you for worship this morning. I want to give a, a special thanks to those of you that have served in our armed forces, with this being Veterans Day weekend. Thank you for your sacrifice. It is to be honored among us. And, uh, especially, and also, if you have a, a family member that's served in the military, thank you for the sacrifice your family has made. As we think about our church fellowship, one of the important parts of that are our member meetings. And this evening, I want to invite you back to, for 5 o'clock for a um, uh, member meeting and time for us to be able to pray together. Um, we'll have updates on various matters we've been talking about as a church, a chance to lift each other up before the Lord and to pray together. Um, there will be an option for you to be able to stream that meeting if you're unable to come in person. Uh, let me just encourage you to do your best to be able to carve out the time to uh, be a part of our church life in that way. This morning, we continue our study through 1 Kings in 1 Kings chapter 10, verses 1 through 29. 1 Kings chapter 10, verses 1 through 29. This is what God's word says. Now, when the queen of Sheba heard of the fame of Solomon concerning the name of the Lord, she came to test him with hard questions. She came to Jerusalem with a very great retinue, with camels bearing spices and very much gold and precious stones. And when she came to Solomon, she told him all that was on her mind. And Solomon answered all her questions. There was nothing hidden from the king that he could not explain to her. And when the queen of Sheba had seen all the wisdom of Solomon, the house he had built, the food of his table, the seating of his officials, and the attendance of his servants, their clothing, his cupbearers, and his burnt offerings that he offered at the house of the Lord, there was no more breath in her. And she said to the king, The report was true that I heard in my own land of your words and of your wisdom, But I did not believe the reports until I came and my own eyes had seen it. And behold, the half was not told me. me. Your wisdom and prosperity surpassed the report that I heard. Happy are your men. Happy are your servants who continually stand before you and hear your wisdom. Blessed be the Lord your God who has delighted in you. And set you on the throne of Israel. Because the Lord loved Israel forever. He has made you king. That you may execute justice and righteousness. Then she gave the king 120 talents of gold. And a very great quantity of spices and precious stones. Never again came such an abundance of spices. As these that the queen of Sheba gave to King Solomon. Moreover, the fleet of Hiram, which had brought gold from Ophir, brought from Ophir a very great amount of almug wood and precious stones. And the king made of the almug wood supports for the house of the Lord and for the king's house, also lyres and harps for the singers. No such almug wood has come or been seen to this day. And King Solomon gave to the queen of Sheba all that she desired. Whatever she asked besides what he had given her by the bounty of the king, Solomon, so she turned and went back to her own land with her servants. 
Now the weight of the gold that came to Solomon in one year was 666 talents of gold, besides that which came from the explorers and from the business of the merchants and from all the kings of the west and from the governors of the land. King Solomon made 200 large shields of beaten gold. 600 shekels of gold went into each shield. And he made 300 shields of beaten gold. Three minus of gold went into each shield. And the king put them in the house of the forest of Lebanon. The king also made a great ivory throne and overlaid it with the finest gold. The throne had six steps, and the throne had a round top. And on each side of the seat were armrests and two lions standing beside the armrests, while twelve lions stood there, one on each end of the step on the six steps. The like of it was never made in any kingdom. All King Solomon's drinking vessels were gold, and all the vessels of the house of the forest of Lebanon were of pure gold. None were of silver. Silver was not considered as anything in the days of Solomon. For the king had a fleet of ships of Tarshish at sea with the fleet of Hiram. Once every three years, the fleet of ships of Tarshish used to come bringing gold, silver, ivory, apes, and peacocks. Thus, King Solomon excelled all the kings of the earth in riches and in wisdom. And the whole earth sought the presence of Solomon to hear his wisdom, which God had put into his mind. Every one of them brought his present, articles of silver and gold, garments, myrrh, spices, horses, and mules, so much year by year. And Solomon gathered together chariots and horsemen. He had 1,400 chariots and 12,000 horsemen, whom he stationed in the chariot cities and with the king in Jerusalem. And the king made silver as common in Jerusalem as stone. And he made cedar as plentiful as the sycamore of Shephelah. And Solomon's import of horses was for, from Egypt and Kew. And the king's traders received from Kew at a price. A chariot could be imported from Egypt for 600 shekels of silver, a horse for 150. And so through the king's traders, they were exported to all the kings of the Hittites and the kings of Syria. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray before we feast on his word. Father, we bow before our King Jesus this morning. We ask you now, would you, would you grant us hearts that long to sit at his feet, to be those who walk no longer by faith but by sight, who see his glory and enjoy the bounty of his table and his eternal kingdom forever. Grant us that now, we pray in your mighty name. Amen. Well, it is a whale of a tale for sure. That is the, the tale of the whale on a rail, that is on a train. Back in the 1880s, a guy named George Newton came up with a kind of fishy idea. He went and got a whale from the East Coast, put it on a train, and trucked it uh, or tr trained it all the way across the U.S. to the Midwest. It made its way to Chicago most famously, but he hit pretty much every major town around the U.S. before that whale rotted. It was a spectacle to come and see. 
a gargantuan giant fish from the depths of the sea that you could actually walk up to and touch with your own hands. Some of the advertisements for it read like this. The first, the only, and probably the last you'll see in your lifetime, the giant of the gigantic creations of the universe. Come see the Prince of Wales. You can't make this stuff up, guys. In Chicago, it was, it, uh, was seen by over 140,000 people. In Milwaukee, 43,000. In St. Louis, 102,000. In Cincinnati, 109,000. And in Pittsburgh, 121,000. It's not hard to imagine why. If you were living in the 1880s in the heartland of the U.S., well, the thought of seeing a whale up close and personal, that's something you'd have to see to believe. There are some astonishing attractions in life. So big that they seem like they're come out of fairy tales. So, things so hard, so fantastical, so hard to believe that you have to just see them for yourself to really understand. Our text this morning has one such attraction of the ancient world, the glory of the wealth and wisdom of King Solomon. We see a foreign dignitary who comes a long way to check out the reports of his fame and fortune, and what she finds does not disappoint. Uh, as we look at this story ourselves, we will learn a lesson, a lesson of our own faith, of what... It, of the, a better king than Solomon with a better kingdom. One that we'll just have to see for ourselves to be able to understand. Our passage this morning is easy enough to understand the structure of it. It's two sections around two different reports. First in 1 through 13, we get the report from the foreign queen. That's the queen of Sheba. And then in 14 through 29, we get the report from the faithful narrator. Both of them giving a report of the wisdom and wealth of Solomon in the full flower of his golden age. And it is a glorious sight indeed. Let's begin with that first report, verses 1 through 13. The report from the foreign queen. We're told that there is a noble queen... Maybe she would be from the state of Missouri if she lived today because she's the sort that has to see it to believe it. She's willing to travel a long way. She's from Sheba, as best we can tell, that's modern-day Yemen. That's about a 1,500-mile journey to Jerusalem that she makes by camel, mind you. Why does she go through such a long and difficult journey? Why all the travels and travails that come with it? Well, because of the legendary fame of a king of wealth and wisdom, the likes of which this earth had never seen, the fame of King Solomon. She comes having hear, heard of this great king and wondering to herself, could it really be true? Now, she's a noble queen, to be sure. She wants to test things, to know that they're true before she believes them. So she comes to Solomon with a pop quiz of sorts. We're told in verse 1 that she comes to test him with hard questions. Well, in verse 3, we see the result of her pop quiz. Solomon passes with flying colors. Verse 3, And Solomon answered all her questions. 
There was nothing hidden from the king that he could not explain to her. Solomon uses the wisdom that God has given him, that unbelievable mind and vast breadth of knowledge to answer all the questions she has. Now, but in so doing, he doesn't just impress her with philosophical fencing, with just using some deft intellectual answers. No, there's much more to this breathtaking display of Solomon's wisdom. Because as, he, as Solomon answers these questions, the queen then gets a tour of King Solomon's kingdom. And what she sees simply takes her breath away. The eye test of her seeing his servants, of her seeing how they're clothed, of his, the houses and buildings he has built, the house of worship to God and the sacrifices that are going on in there, her seeing the wealth of Solomon and all the wisdom needed to provide all of this. It results in that statement at the end of verse 5. There was no more breath in her. Isn't that incredible? She's still astonished. She has no words because of Solomon's wealth and wisdom that have more than lived up to the billing. Well, we see the actual words that she does finally find in verses 6 through 10. Uh, she says that the reports of Solomon, they, they weren't uh, even uh, as exaggerated as they seemed. It turns out they didn't even do him justice. He's even better than advertised. And he, she declares that anyone in Solomon's kingdom is blessed. Look in verse 8. Happy are your men. Happy are your servants who continually stand before you and hear your wisdom. She declares Solomon is such a wise and good king that everyone in his kingdom it prospers and is blessed. Even more astonishing, though, is what we see in verse 9. This foreign queen is drawn to worship Solomon's God because of the wealth and wisdom she sees on display. Look at verse 9. Blessed be the Lord your God who has delighted in you and set you on the throne of Israel. Because the Lord loved Israel forever, he has made you king that you may execute justice and righteousness. This foreign queen sees what is obviously true, that Solomon is God's king with God's wisdom put in place to rule over God's kingdom, and she can't help but give God the glory. A Gentile queen who recognizes the greatness of Israel's God and blesses his name, praises him. It's almost as if the promise made to Abraham so long ago that through him the nations would be blessed is finally coming true. Well, for all that the queen is astonished by, she is left fuller, fuller than she came. All those camels brought riches with her. She gives to Solomon tons and tons of gold, 4.5 tons if you do the math. But you add to that a mountain of spices, a mountain so high that Spices were never so plentiful as they were after her visit. But despite all that she gave, undoubtedly she felt 
that she came out the winner in the trade. She received far more because she valued the wisdom of Solomon more than gold itself. Now, she was generously given treasures to take home with her, but no matter how full those camels may have been, there's no doubt her heart was even more full because of the wisdom of God's king that she had come and found. You may be wondering, is her account accurate? Is this just another example of ancient exaggeration? Well, that's why the second account is so important. Not just a report from the faithful queen, but the report from the faithful narrator in verses 14 through 29. In this section, we get another glimpse at the golden age of Solomon's kingdom. And this time the narrator can't help but tell us his opinion of the matter as he does so. Now, just to be clear that this is a period of ridiculous riches. Solomon's pile of gold grows and grows. Uh, the word gold is used 10 times in these verses. It, it just over, it dominates this section. It overwhelms you how much gold is talked about. We're told that he receives a, a, a total of 25 tons of gold each year in taxes just from the nation of Israel. 25 tons of gold. But wait, there's more, because it turns out he's also doing his deals with Hiram, those lucrative deals that end up, end up with him with even more piles of gold and cedar year after year. And you add to that all the revenue they get from their trade monopoly. No one could do trade by land or by sea without Hiram and King Solomon getting a piece of the pie. Their gold just kept on piling up. You add to that the fact that Solomon, it appears he was something of the arms dealer of the ancient east. Down in verses 26 through 29, he, it turns out he's importing and exporting chariots and horses. The finest chariots, the fiercest horses. If you wanted to buy them, you came to Solomon. And let me, let me tell you, you had to pay a pretty penny for the privilege. Solomon is piling up gold at such a rate that you might wonder what in the world is he going to do with it. Well, he, he starts putting it on the walls of his halls. He makes decorative shields, golden shields that are from the feet all the way up to the neck of a person. He, he makes, uh, just puts them on the wall one after another. He, he makes smaller ones too, the type of handheld shields. Not only does he use them for decorations, Solomon eats off of gold. His plates are gold. He drinks from golden goblets. He uses golden forks and golden knives. Everything is gold. Undoubtedly, the pinnacle would have been the thing he sat on, the golden throne described in verses 18 through 20. It was ivory at its base and then covered with gold. It had six steps. All of them were gold, and on each step was a fierce lion representing the Lion of Judah. Then there was the throne itself, fully covered in gold, high enough that it was clear that Solomon sat above all the kings of the earth. 
Now, you may be asking yourself, is this, is this opulence? Is this just another example of an oppressive ruler? I mean, we live in the day and age where people talk a lot about things like income inequality. Should we think that all this gold means that Solomon is being unjust to his subjects, that he's really just pillaging from them for his own benefit? Well, there'll be some opportunity for us to ask questions like this in chapter 11. But not right now. Right now, if we let the narrator tell his story of this time, if we trust his report, then we need to allow him to give a glowing report of the golden age. Look at verses 23 through 24. Thus Solomon excelled all the kings of the earth in riches and wisdom. And the whole earth sought the presence of Solomon to hear his wisdom, which God had put into his mind. Every one of them brought his present, articles of silver and gold, garments, myrrh, spices, horses, and mules, so much year by year. If you, let, if you trust the narrator's telling of it, this is all evidence that Solomon was everything God promised he would be. He was the wisest, wealthiest king this world had ever seen. And for God's people, the nation of Israel, he resided, presided over the golden age, the greatest period of the nation of Israel that ever was, before they will fall from their great heights into ruin. The nations of the earth are being blessed. God's people are prospering under God's king. And everyone can see the glory of Israel's God with their own eyes if they'll just come and see for themselves. Now you may think that this has been a pleasant trip down memory lane. A peek into a time period that seems too good to be true. Maybe your heart is even stirred a little bit, longing for an age gone by like this. But what does it matter for us living today? We live 2020, one of the strangest years in human history, by some accounts. What does Solomon's wisdom and wealth have to do with how we live in our day and age. Well, let me suggest three lines of applications for, you, for us. The first, first is that we should treasure the opportunity to seek wisdom from Jesus. So we should treasure the opportunity to seek wisdom from Jesus. It turns out that the Queen of Sheba had the idea right, that gold, gold isn't more valuable than wisdom. Proverbs 16, 16 tells us as much. How much better to get wisdom than gold? To get understanding is to be chosen rather than silver. That noble queen traveled long and far to come and meet a wise king, and she wasn't disappointed. How much more will we not be disappointed when we come and seek the greatest of all kings, with the very wisdom of God. Colossians 2.3 says this about Jesus. In whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. 
There's never been a king with more wisdom than Jesus. Because Jesus is the very source of wisdom to be found in this world. Jesus uniquely is both one of us, a man, truly incarnate in the flesh. And yet he is also creator God. Which means Jesus knows everything about this world he's made. Everything about us. Everything about why we're here. And everything about heaven in which God only lives. Remember what happened when Jesus started to uncork some of that wisdom in his earthly life? His opponents were left speechless and sputtering. But those who believed in him, they were astonished. They declared, we've never heard teaching like this. Someone who teaches with authority. What a privilege it is to sit at the feet of King Jesus and to learn from his wisdom. Brothers and sisters, do you realize that every time you open your Bible, you are sitting at the feet of the greatest teacher that ever lived, letting him tutor you in the most important matters of this life and the life to come. I wonder, do you feel the reality and the weight of that privilege? That his very spirit is guiding you into his truth. That as you read and understand and study the Bible, you are actually unearthing treasures of wisdom that this world will never be able to compare to. Do you ever walk away from your time studying the Bible saying, truly, this is the wisdom of God. And I get to partake of it each and every day. What a privilege. What an opportunity. But let's recognize with opportunity comes obligation. That's our second line of application. Take seriously the obligation to listen to wise King Jesus. Take seriously the obligation to listen to wise King Jesus. It turns out that the noble, noble Queen of Sheba will show up a second time in Scripture Jesus spoke about her in Matthew chapter 12, in verse 42. Matthew 12, 42. He said, the queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. Jesus was speaking to a group of religious people who would not listen to his wisdom. They were rejecting the king of all. And he goes back to this account of the queen of the south. And he said, well, if this noble queen from Yemen traveled so far, so gladly received the wisdom of King Solomon, who, who wasn't even a quarter of the king that Jesus was, well, what will it mean if you reject the fullness and the flower of the wisdom of the mighty king himself, King Jesus. To reject Jesus is to heap condemnation on us, ourselves. And according to Jesus, that queen, great noble queen, well, she will show up on just judgment day if we're not careful. I love the way author Dale Ralph Davis describes it. He said that, if we're not careful on judgment day, 
that great queen will come striding into the judgment hall and point her finger at us in condemnation. If this queen saw the value of wisdom, what does it mean when we reject such greater, such clearer wisdom from God at the feet of queen, King Jesus? Brothers and sisters, Are you listening when your king's speaking to you? Maybe you have a hard time reading the Bible in your quiet time. Maybe you have a hard time listening to sermons like this one. Your mind wanders, you, you find yourself yawning, despite the fact that you know, deep down, you know that this is God's word to you. What, what do you do with that? Can I make a suggestion to you? Could, maybe you just pray a prayer as simple as this one. Jesus, I know that your word is what I need. And yet, Jesus, I need your help to want it. I need your help to desire it, to have an appetite for it. Jesus, would you help me to value your word more than all the riches of this world? See if maybe your heart might change its tune how much you desire the wisdom of Jesus. Well, maybe you're listening this morning and you're in a good spot. You have a healthy appetite for God's word. You find yourself savoring it and you can't wait to get another helping of it each morning. Well, with Thanksgiving right around the corner and many of us worried about overindulging, I have good news for you. There's no such thing as overindulging in the feast of the wisdom of Jesus found in his word. Enjoy it. Have another big plate full of it. As much as we might partake, there's always more. And our souls will always benefit from God's word. But let me just give you an encouragement. If you're in one of those seasons where it's obvious to you, the wonder of the wisdom of Jesus as you read his word, take the time to gossip about it. Be like that noble queen Tell others, you're not going to believe what I read in my Bible this morning. Even if they look at you a little bit crazy, you'll be spreading the fame of great King Jesus. I think this is actually one of the more underrated ways you can evangelize. As you talk with someone who's not a Christian, just ask them, can I tell you what I read in the Bible this week? If they say yes, you've got a wide open opportunity to tell them a little bit about the king that you serve and to invite them to come and see for themselves. Now maybe you're listening this morning and you don't know King Jesus yourself. There's an invitation to you here. Maybe you've got questions, big questions. Jesus is not afraid of them. Bring them to his feet but if you do, friend, you must be ready for the answers that he gives. Jesus will give you answers, but they probably aren't the ones you're expecting. To many, they will be difficult. They'll be hard. He makes great claims about himself, but friend, if you take his claims to heart, and if you really wrestle with them and come to the place where you believe them, you will not be disappointed. Jesus claims that he is the answer to the greatest problem you have, maybe even the one you don't know that you have, that you're guilty before the God who made you, that your life 
lived without consideration for him means you are under his just, uh, just condemnation. But Jesus also claims to be the son of God from heaven who came down to this earth, earth to rescue sinners like you and me. He claims that he did that by giving up his life willingly on a cross, being killed as a substitute to absorb the punishment that our sins deserved. He claims to have risen from the grave itself, to have overcome death. And he claims now to be able to offer you complete forgiveness before God, a completely clear slate. And even more than that, to be able to offer you a life forever with God in a kingdom that'll go on without end. Friend, if you are on such a journey with hard questions for Jesus, uh, we as a church would love to help you on that journey. Come after the service or send us an email or a text message. Ask your questions and we would love to point you to the places that you can find the answers from King Jesus himself. There's one last application. One I think that's particularly suited for the day in which we live. A lesson for hard days. It's this, that we must long for the golden age. We must long for the golden age. My family has really enjoyed a series of children's books called The Green Ember Saga by author S.D. Smith. You could describe the series correctly as rabbits with swords. It's an epic tale with cute, cuddly characters. Uh, the, the basic plot line is a, a prosperous woodland kingdom inhabited by rabbits under a good king, Jupiter, falls into ruin through treachery and the oppression of wolves and birds of prey. There's much heartbreak and pain in this story. It, it's a, an epic saga with battles and heroes and, yes, some really low, lonely points. One of the themes prominent in these books is the longing for the age that's past, the good age under King Jupiter. As the characters reflect back on it, they can't help but wish for days like that. But, but there's another theme running through that emerges at the darkest and the loneliest of moments. That is a, a better longing, longing for better days to come. They call those days the days of the mended wood, when all the foes will be vanquished and a greater kingdom will be here. There's a song that's sung at several pivotal points in the story. When the main characters are at their loneliest and seemingly without hope, here's a small section from it. Songs of suffering and cruel murders, all lament and never a voice. Raised in grateful gladness to the heights, never reason to rejoice. But it will not be so in the mended wood. We'll be free and glad again. It will not be so in the mended wood. When the air of Jupiter reigns. When the air of Jupiter reigns. I think author S.D. Smith captures the thing that a believing heart needs so much to be able to endure difficult days, not just longing for good days gone past, no longing for better days, 
longing for a golden age to come. Maybe you find yourself right now empathizing with the believers in ages gone past. The people that would have first heard this account of King Solomon's golden age would have felt far and lonely in Babylon. They were in exile. Their kingdom was in ruins. The glory of Solomon's golden age had long since faded. They, they were asking questions like, how did we get here? How could God possibly get us back from here? They needed hope. Hope that better days would come. Brothers and sisters, do you realize that the hope that they longed for is the same hope that we with greater clarity look forward to? The hope of a greater kingdom coming with the greatest king of all at the center of it. Brothers and sisters, the peace and prosperity of Solomon's golden age was just a preview of the golden age coming under the rulership of King Jesus. It'll be a kingdom so prosperous that the, key, the streets itself will be paved with gold. The walls will be made of precious stones. It'll be a kingdom so peaceful that the gates will be left open day and night because there are no more enemies left to make war. It'll be a kingdom so glorious that the kings and queens of the nations will come and pay tribute to the king in the midst of his glorious city. It'll be a kingdom with a throne far higher than any throne on this earth, even the throne of King Solomon. A throne so great this world has never known any like it. And sitting on that king will be the greatest king of all, the king of kings, the lord of lords, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the lamb who was slain, the king over God's people that will usher in a period of peace and prosperity without end. And brothers and sisters, happy are his citizens. Happy are his servants. Happy are those who hear the words from his mouth. And their blessed state will go on forever and ever. So maybe this week, maybe you found yourself longing in the midst of a, a lonely living room by yourself, longing for good days gone past. Maybe you've even been longing for days not that long ago when life seemed so much simpler. You had so much more freedom in day-to-day -day things you did. Longing for the good old days isn't a bad thing in itself. But your heart needs something more sturdy than that. If you're to remain faithful, your heart needs the longing for the golden age to come. You may ask, what will it be like at the feet of Jesus? What will it be like in his golden age? Let the preview from Revelation 21 encourage your heart this morning. Revelation 21, 1 through 4. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw a holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold! 
The dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. You may ask me, what will it be like in the golden age of King Jesus? Well, there are some things that you just have to see for yourself to truly believe. Let's pray. Oh, Jesus, thank you for that indestructible hope of your kingdom coming that we have. Would you fortify our hearts now? Would your wisdom instruct us that, yes, as hard as the days you call us to live in may be, that it'll all be worth it on the day where we see you, our great king, seated on your glorious throne. Would you fill our hearts and stir them now with a measure of the joy we'll have as we cast our golden crowns at your feet and give all our honor and glory to you, the worthy King of kings and Lord of lords, our Lion of Judah and Lamb that was slain for sinners. We worship you now, King Jesus, in your name. Amen.